Well, good morning and welcome to uh, the Leewood Campus of Christ Community. We're glad you're here. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson. I hope you're having a great Advent season. Uh, Advent and uh, family Christmas cards seem to go hand in hand, at least in our house. I don't know about you. Uh, anybody here get stressed out putting together their family Christmas card besides us? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a stressful time. And uh, one of the things we do in our house, uh, we've done it for a long time, is we, as we get ready, we look back at Christmas cards that we have sent in the past. Uh, don't look so surprised. We also look at ones you've sent um, or others have sent to us. And uh, <laughs> have you ever been in a place where you look back at your Christmas cards over the years, your family Christmas cards, your pictures, and you go, what were we thinking? Uh, and I'm sure you have that thought with some of the Christmas cards you received, like, what are they thinking? I mean, you wouldn't say that, of course. But the point is, is that every family, uh, and very inconvenient truth that we're reminded of every Christmas, is uh, kind of weird, right? Every family's got their issues. Every family's got kind of a strange family life and history. I have to tell you that at Christ Community, you know, we have five campuses, we have a teaching team that I work with, and uh, we talk about the messages, and uh, we look at the texts and so forth. Well, anyway, this, a week ago, one of our more demented campus pastors, whose name will not, uh, I will not share with you, it's really a lot of fun, actually, he had spent some time Googling, that's what campus pastors do, in case you wondered, uh, the theme, and you might want to do this maybe later, but uh, awkward Christmas cards. H- have you run into that? Uh, I, I laughed so hard I had to share a couple with you. You want a sample? Uh, here's, here's just a sample, okay? <laughs> Can you believe you get all those people in those whatever kind of jammies to actually do that? <laughs> or actually being reindeer? I mean, you know, how bad is that? Here's a couple other ones. This one, I'm an animal lover. Can you believe animals show up at Christmas family cards? Tell me you've never sent your dog in a picture. But look at this dog. You see the dog that matches his sweater? Is that unbelievable? And the chicken or the goose? It sounds like an Aflac commercial or something. And then this wonderful lady has this great tan, you know? <laughs> look at that. <laughs> or I love this young man. Kids, I'm not making fun of you if you're here this morning, but I love this. You know, when I run, I, I run in the park, and uh, in the fall, I see all these beautiful little families taking pictures, right? Because the light is right in the fall. And, I see all these moms and dads trying to get their kids to look at This kid here in the front is classic. I mean, you would never, you know, this is the last thing he wants to do, right? And uh, Merry Christmas, right? It's like, I love that. Well, my point is that Christmas, um, man, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, come on. I mean, there are aspects to Christmas that um, are hard, right? We, we miss family members. Uh, Christmas amplifies families, members that aren't with us for whatever reason. But we have to also say that Christmas is a time we're reminded what messes families are. All families. I want to suggest to you, maybe it's a confession, that my favorite Christmas movie is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And if you've not really entered into this brilliance... uh, you have to do this. It's a spiritual experience, I assure you. But don't you just love all the characters of the Griswold family, particularly Cousin Eddie? Cousin Eddie, if you've seen it, and if you haven't seen the show, you've got to do this. I mean, I'm telling you, it's important. Um, shows up, here's a picture, in his RV. Uh, we all have Cousin Eddie's in our life. And one of the reasons I think there's such a heartfelt connection with the Griswold family, what is it? 
Because deep down, we all know there's just a lot of Griswold family in all of us. We all have our cousin Eddie's. All families are weird in some ways, whether we admit it or not, and Christmas brings it out. We do have the crazy cousin Eddie's, don't we? We also have the intrusive, gossipy aunt. And kids, you always have the obnoxious, braggy cousin who has it all, right? And lets you know it. And the list could go on and on and on. My point is that every family is a mess. And if you look far enough, you have the courage and the transparency, just start looking in your family genealogical closet. Uh, my sister Bonnie, my oldest sister Bonnie and her husband, have spent the last decade literally traveling the globe. They are passionate about our genealogical tree. And uh, there's more here than I can even mention, but when we get together at our family reunions, and again, you know, we call them family rebellions, there's this recounting of our grand history. You know, there's even little books on it. It's like we have writers, poets, artists. I mean, we have social reformers, we have college presidents, but we are very reluctant to give the other side. I can't remember a family reunion where we've heard other aspects of our genealogical pride and glory. We have our share of thieves, bank robbers, and my mom's maiden name is Stowe, from the Stowe family, and they were given the name, why? Because they stowed away on a ship without paying for it, so cheapskates. <laughs> and we have murderers too. That's it. Every family has skeletons in the closet. But have you ever thought about Jesus' genealogical closet? What does Jesus' family tree look like? If you haven't thought a lot about it, um, what would you find if you Googled or went to Ancestry.com? You may think that Jesus' family tree is pristine. But the gospel writer Matthew introduces his whole gospel painting a very different genealogical picture. One that I suspect will surprise you, if not shock you, and yes, scandalize you. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as we enter the first verses of Matthew 1, let's just be very transparent as you get there. It is tempting to skip over this part, is it not? Amen. There are a list of names, and they seem boring, tedious, pointless. But Matthew places Jesus' family tree before Jesus' birth for very important reasons. So I'd like you to stand with me now as I read this text. Yes, I'm going to do it. And isn't this going to be a grand sermon? Stand, please. Hear God's word. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rebom, and Rebom, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Josephat, and Josephat, the father of Jerom, and Jerom, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations for Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Are you ready? Here we go. This morning, we're continuing our series, which we've entitled For All Peoples. And from the very beginning to the very end, and now we are here at the very center of the story, we learn our theme that God wants a family, a really big family from all peoples of the earth. Last week, Pastor Andrew unpacked for us the, the idea that the promise of God's family speaks into the present when we look at our future and it gives us hope. This week now, we will see how God's family in the past speaks into the present, strengthening our faith. Here in chapter 1 of Matthew, Matthew introduces us to the theme for his entire book. In fact, the entire New Testament begins here. That is not insignificant. And we are going to be exploring this more fully in the Advent season, but also throughout the entire year next year. Matthew's big idea for his book is this, that Jesus is the king with no equal. He is a king for all people, and Matthew will come right out of the literary blocks right away, and he will validate his strong proposition of that idea by making two assertions right away in chapter 1. These two assertions frame Matthew's thinking in this chapter. First, that history points to Jesus. In other words, the Christian faith is not rooted in some abstract idea. It is rooted in human history and time and space. That is hugely important to Matthew and to us. Secondly, the second assertion is that salvation depends on Jesus. In other words, Christian hope is anchored in a person of history. Jesus. Okay? So let's dive into this text. Now, before we go real specific, 
Will you join with me and step back and look at a quick flyover of these 17 verses? When you step back and see the panoramic literary structure, you notice right away the threefold literary arrangement of this genealogy. Jesus' genealogical family tree is centered around three broad historical markers, two people and one place. First, you'll notice Abraham, you'll notice David, and then you will notice Babylon and the Babylonian exile in Jewish history. You'll also notice in verse 17 something very unusual, and that is a threefold repetition of the language. If you have your text open, electronic or paper, you'll notice the 14 generations. Now, let me be very transparent here, is that you will notice that this seems a bit strange. Matthew does not very explicitly list every generation or every person. It's not his purpose of the 14s. Many scholars try to bring some sense of what he is trying to say here. And I have to tell you, scholarly, I do not have any sense that any speculation is convincing to me. Matthew is clearly, with his brilliant style and his inspiration, giving us some literary flyover that captures some meaning that the first century Jewish reader understood that I think we have a hard time grasping. But I think we can grasp this. The 14s are there for a reason, poetically and literarily, even though we don't understand all their meaning. But I do think we see the coherence and connectivity of why he's doing it. What Matthew is doing is he is saying through this literary form, that God has superintended the movement of human history, the messy human history, to accomplish His purposes and promises in a person. Now, the book of Matthew is perhaps, in my mind, best introduced by Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the message. Let me give you just a little slice of that because Peterson is brilliant here. As he looks at the book, he says this, the story of Jesus doesn't begin with Jesus. God had been at work for a long time. Salvation, which is the main business of Jesus, is an old business. Jesus is the coming together in final form of themes and energies and movements that had been set in motion, notice, before the foundation of the world. Now, notice carefully, Matthew opens the New Testament by setting the local story of Jesus in its world historical context. You will notice also, and you can look this up as thoughtful people, listeners, and readers of text, that Matthew borrows a lot of the structure and the names from the genealogies listed in the Old Testament, particularly a scattering of first and second Chronicles, but a compacted focus on the book of Ruth. And he is connecting us to the broader story. Matthew's arrangement of the genealogical dots is clearly mysterious to us. But the big picture which the dots present is clear. And that is this, and it frames this whole book. Jesus is the king from all people and for all Matthew will build the whole 28 chapters with the exclamation point of an apologia that this king 
has no earthly equal. So what does Matthew specifically want us to see as we enter into this book in verses 1 through 17? Two main things he wants us to see. That is first, Jesus' stellar genealogical pedigree. That's in verse 1. From verse 2 on, his primary focus is to show us Jesus' messy family genealogical history. So let's begin. First, what you'll notice in verse 1, and this may surprise you, that Jesus' stellar genealogical history is highlighted. Many of us who have, in our Western context, taken Western civilization, I took that class in college, it betrays our own myopic understanding of human history. It's Western history. It is often inadequate. I don't know if you took a class like this. I did, and my professor in a university called Jesus a joker, which was a whole other conversation I had with him. But most Western civilization classes in college or high school present Jesus in an incomplete picture as this obscure, uneducated peasant who is crucified by Rome as a seditious revolutionary. But if we orient ourselves to a broader vista of human history, as Matthew does, we see a vastly different picture, and Matthew gives it to us. Now notice, verse 1, each phrase is vitally important. In fact, in the original Greek language, it is captured in only eight verses. Or I'm not sorry, eight words. Eight words. Here's the English. The book of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in these eight words, in the original language, there is a ton of truth conveyed. It's packed. Let me highlight just a little bit. Again, the first phrase that sets the whole book is the phrase, the book of the genealogy, or literally the book of origin. This specifically connects the original reader to the echoing of Genesis text, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 2-4 that summarizes all of creation, particularly humans in creation, and then Genesis 5 verse 1, as humans are built in the Old Testament story. What's important here is that we see right away that Jesus is the king not only for all people, but from all peoples of human history. Luke will parallel this genealogy in Luke 3, highlighting Jesus' connection to all human history and not just Jewish history. This is important. He will say in Luke's genealogy, he will build up to that Jesus is the son ultimately of Adam. Adam. Now, Matthew immediately asserts that the Christian faith that he will espouse in 28 chapters is rooted in human history. And it is important for Matthew right away to also make the case that human history and Jewish history find their intersection in Jesus of Nazareth through his genealogical family tree. And again, this makes sense that right after the genealogy statement, we have the next phrase which is the phrase that captures Jewish history, son of David. If we look back in the Old Testament, this word son of David has really strong truths. It is tied to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can look at this, and it's God's promise to David that through his ultimate lineage, a king would come 
who would reign forever, his an eternal throne that would set the world right. And the Hebrews called it Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah, the one who would save. Jesus means salvation. Salvation is Messiah. The son of David had this messianic idea. But Matthew doesn't want us to just see the illusion of that. He explicitly states it, notice in the text, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Most scholars believe, and I would agree with this, that are thoughtful in this text, that this is the only time Matthew describes Jesus with these two words in all the gospel. Jesus Christ, not just Jesus, but Jesus the Messiah. And again, he is giving us an exclamation literary uh, exclamation point when he starts his book. Jesus is the ultimate king. He is the Messiah. But not only is Jewish history validated, you'll notice that human history is as well in the language of the coming together of human history and Jewish history in the next phrase, the son of Abraham. Do you see it? In other words, Abraham in the Old Testament was given the promise that through Abraham, what? All the nations of the world would be blessed. So Matthew is saying that this promise to Abraham gives us this sense that this king is for all people. Now, Matthew does not want us to miss the stellar family pedigree of Jesus that validates his kingship, but his great emphasis is not there. What surprises us is how he showcases Jesus' messy, messy family genealogical history. And if you are here this morning and doubt the veracity and truth of the Gospels, you think this is just a bunch of... This text shouts out historical authenticity. It's unvarnished. And what a messy family history. Let's take a look at this a little bit. Now, as we enter into this, because of a long distance of culture and time, the names listed here in verses 2 through 16 that I read may not seem that messy or even connect to you. But to the first century listener, who was, in this case, Jewish, these names and their stories spoke to their history, their oral-rooted history. This was the conversation of family reunions, told and retold of stories of their past, of their family, of their rootedness, the good, yes, the bad, the ugly. It screams out the who's who that they claimed and the who's that and the whodunits of their history. And here we have the misfits and the malcontents, and they all grace an historical family photo album. That's what the genealogy is. Now, let's take a little closer look. You ready? At some of them, I can't cover all of them, but begin to grasp the flavor of what Matthew is presenting to us. First of all, here in verse 2, and if you have your Bible open, you find the name Jacob. Wow. When the original readers heard that name, all kinds of things shot up in their mind and heart. Jacob in the Old Testament, if you read it, first of all, his name. His name, Hebrew name, means deceiver or liar. Now, kids, what would it be like if your parents gave you the name liar or deceiver? How would that play at school with your friends when you introduced yourself? Can you imagine the abuse you would get? Yet Jacob, his name, in that cultural context, reflected his character. And there are many things we can say about Jacob, but let me just give you one example. This, this guy was a piece of work. 
Jacob swindled and cheated his older brother Esau out of his family inheritance. See, where there's a family, there's, right? There's greed, right? Where there's a will, there's a relative. I mean, that's the picture. <laughs> there it is. Unbelievable. This is a Jesus genealogical closet. Let's just keep going. Jacob had a son, Judah. We had several sons, 12 of them. This guy was a piece of work too. If you read the Old Testament, the Bible's never boring. Read the Old Testament, New Testament, you will un it's unbelievably engaging. There are so many stories about Judah. Let me just give you a couple of them. Um, one is highlighted here in the genealogy, but I just got to tell you this one. This one, Judah. You mentioned this? Your brother or sister selling you into slavery with, with slave traffickers to make money? Judah was a part of his motley band brothers that sold Joseph into Egypt for money. You think your brother or sister's bad. But the focus of the, of the genealogy is another piece. I want you to see it. It is Judah's connection, can I say that delicately, with Tamar. Specifically how Tamar got pregnant. Now let me just step back for a minute. You'll notice something unusual. There are ancient genealogies that were very patriarchal. Women didn't appear. Now notice this genealogy. Four women appear. That says a lot in multiple ways. Let me just highlight some of them. Tamar, let's just say, is not the Sarah or Deborah, her hero of the Old Testament. Uh, she probably wouldn't be invited to your birthday party. Maybe she wouldn't be your friend on Facebook. She had a social stigma written all over her. She was a foreigner in that cultural context, which is a huge black eye. Her connection with Judah was scandalous scandalous. How so, you say? Well, Judah in the text was already married. He had three sons. And Judah's son marries Tamar. But he dies. Judah's son dies. And neither Judah nor his remaining sons want anything to do with this Tamar. So in that cultural context, Tamar is out of options. Out of options. She dresses like a prostitute and is solicited by her own father-in-law. Tamar gets pregnant with Judah's twin children. This is where we see Perez and Zerah. Talk about family shame and cultural scandal. There are some big skeletons in the closet here. Matthew doesn't hide the door. He opens it wide. In the closet, there's prostitution already, solicitation, incest. Do you notice how the Bible doesn't sugarcoat human brokenness or sin and shame or shroud how messy families can be, even in Jesus' family genealogical tree? Now, Matthew also, let's keep going, highlights another woman here. You see her in verse 5. Her name is Rahab. I have never, and I've been, you know, a lot of different places. I have never, when I've asked this question, had anyone raise their hand. This could be an exception. Have you ever met a Rahab? Seriously. There are lots of good biblical names we name our kids after for generations. Is it surprising 
that you don't know a lot of Rahabs in your life? We know from the book of Joshua, you might know about her, that Rahab lived in Jericho. Let me give you a little archaeological background. Jericho connected the ancient Middle East world. It was connected to all these wonderful traffic ways with the spice trade and all that. From 8,000, Neolithic, 8,000 B.C. in Jericho, it was a vibrant economic center. Bustling with activity and travelers from all over the world. Rahab had a very prosperous business. What was it? It was prostitution. Most likely, she oversaw several prostitutes. And because of her work, I may use that language, cheek and tongue, she had information like the CIA of the world. And the God's covenant people, when they went into the promised land, they ended up right at her door. And she took the side of the one true God, protected the spies. Rahab's faith in the one true God of Israel is honored, and she eventually makes it into the New Testament Hall of Faith. That's like the football Hall of Fame for the Bible. There she is. But notice this in Hebrews 11. Go look later. Rahab is still described in the New Testament as Rahab the prostitute. She always had this historical stigma attached to her. Yet it is Rahab that gives birth in this genealogy to the one who would become the great-grandfather of King David. Is that amazing? Scandalous sin and scandalous mercy. Verse 5, we see another. Her name is Ruth. Ruth has a whole book named after in the Old Testament, but she's got quite a scandalous history too. Ruth was a Moabite. Okay, and if you follow the Old Testament and the language, Moab was not just a place east of Israel that was a place of, that was despised, a nation hated. It was not just a reference to a geographical space. It was a reference to personal shame. Because Moab in the Hebrew means, Moab means from the father. And if you look back at Genesis 19, you see that Lot and one of his daughters had an incestual relationship of which this whole nation came out of. And yet it is Ruth, this despised foreigner from this hated nation, that becomes a refugee that is welcomed in Israel. Hospitality, chesed, loyal love extended to her, and she eventually marries a Jewish man by the name of Boaz. Oh, and then there's, her name's not even mentioned, but you know her. And her name means daughter of a sacred oath, Bathsheba, Bathsheba. Notice in the genealogy, her name is not listed. Rahab is, Ruth, she's described, look at the text, as the wife of Uriah. Millennia has emerged. And whether you've read the Bible, you're newer to the Christian faith, you're checking it out, you know all about Bathsheba and David, don't you? 
Can you imagine that story staying with us for centuries and millennia? Story made Jerusalem tabloid headings. I mean, it was black, big, and there. Remember the story? King David has this thing for his top military, military general's wife. And he gets Bathsheba pregnant. King David, it wasn't his finest hour. He tries to craft another plausible scenario. This is cover-up. This is Bathsheba-gate. And when that fails, because David's trying to get this impression that Uriah has impregnated his wife. But all that falls apart. And David has Uriah killed. Killed. The wounding shrapnel of scandal fly everywhere. And we still feel the residual effects today. David and Bathsheba would for millennia bring with them the connotation of unforgettable scandal. Abuse of power, corrupt politics, adultery, premeditated murder. Notice also, Matthew highlights the son of David and Bathsheba, Solomon. Solomon's the kind of guy, he wasn't perfect, he had all kinds of issues, but man, he's the kind of guy you'd want to say, he was my relative. Amazingly wealthy, Bill Gates style, right? Powerful, great statesman, you'd want him in your family. But notice, in the genealogy, you can look at this, there's other good kings and leaders, Rehoboam, Hezekiah, yeah, Zerubbabel later on, yeah. But notice the horrific evil national leaders that are in here. One of them's name is prominent, and I emphasized it when I read it, Manasseh. When you look at the Old Testament, King Manasseh reigned for 55 years, no term limits. He was ruthless, maniacal in the occult, all kinds of stuff. He offered up child sacrifice. I can't tell you all. The writer of Chronicles in 33.9 describes him this way, Manasseh led Judah and its inhabitants of Jerusalem straight to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This was a leader, a king in Jesus' genealogical closet. Think of it this way, 20th century. This was Russian leader Stalin. This was Cambodian leader Pol Pot. This was Ugandan leader Idi Amin. And if you've read about their lives, you shudder with their evil. Manasseh was like that. What a messy tree Jesus had. Yet Matthew asserts that human history, however messy, still matters. And it ultimately points to Jesus. This is his story. And Matthew moves to the second main theme that salvation depends on Jesus. Notice in verse 21, when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream about Mary's supernatural pregnancy, the angel says, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, which means salvation, and he will save his people from their sins. This genealogy in verses 1 through 17, there is so much sin in Jesus' family tree, no wonder Matthew says, yes, Jesus has come to save this mess. And your mess and mine, he is the king. All history points to him. Human salvation depends on him. This past Friday, 
Liz and I had the great joy of hearing the Messiah performed again. We've heard it many times. At the beautiful Kaufman Performing Arts Center. And we both left saying that was the finest Messiah rendition we've ever heard. And the radiant glory of Jesus in Hellsburg Hall was palpable. When everyone, as has been done, right, since George Frederick Handel first performed it, stood at the hollow Eucharist. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus is the king with no equal. He's a king for all people. And during the Advent season, we remember his initial advent into this world as a little baby. And we anticipate his future return as the king of kings. Let me challenge us with three reminders of Advent this week, for this week. First is this. Jesus is the king that can handle your mess. Will you in hopeful transparency draw near to Jesus this Advent season? Will you come to him with the past that haunts you, the shame that smothers you, the loneliness and fear that stalks you in the night? Will you bring to him the sickness or sin that is crippling you? It is out of unimaginable kindness and love that Jesus entered time and space. Think of it, the one who made the world, who entered this world, who created the envelope of time, enters the envelope of time within the constraints of time out of unimaginable love for you and me. Though he did not sin, he encountered every temptation, every human emotion, every heartache, and every struggle. No one knows the messiness of this fallen world and the fallen human heart that you and I both have and the brokenness of our families and the mess of our family histories and the heartaches and brokenness better than Jesus. The crucified and risen King is there for you, so will you in repentance and faith embrace Him as your Savior and Lord? Will you do that today? And if you are a follower of Jesus already, will you use this Advent season to pray, Lord, draw me near to you. Jesus is there for you. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are feeling, Jesus is there for you in the mess of your past and the mess of your present. Secondly, Jesus is the king who can bring beauty out of brokenness. Remember Rahab the prostitute? Her life shows what redemption can look like and how God uses her in the trajectory of history in his son. Wow. Remember Ruth, the foreign refugee? Remember Jacob, the liar? Remember King Manasseh? Isn't it interesting? Second Chronicles gives us a hint that once he's led to Babylon in shackles, he turns to God. And in 2 Chronicles 33, we read, Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. Can you imagine worshiping next to Manasseh in heaven someday? Scandalous sin. Unimaginable evil. Extraordinary grace and mercy. When we look at Jesus' family tree and our family tree, we can experience renewed faith and hope. God can bring so much beauty out of so much brokenness. I think a Sarah Grove's song, Add to the Beauty, I love this song. She writes, We come with beautiful secrets. 
We come with purposes written on our hearts, written on our souls. We come to every new morning with possibilities only we can hold that only we can hold. She says, redemption comes in strange places, small spaces. She says, I want to add to the beauty to tell a better story. Matthew says this, I want to add to the beauty. I want to tell a better story. I want to tell you the greatest story ever told. It is a story where redemption comes in strange places, in small spaces, in broken places. And in chapter one, we get this most brilliant, long, beautiful view of redemption, don't we? It's not merely short bursts of fading light, but it's the dawning, brilliant sunrise of a hopeful new day in human history. We see such a picture of God's amazing faithfulness in the past, and it gives us confidence to trust Him in a messy world today that is filled with what? Terror, hatred, injustice, corruption. Violence, sexual perversion, idolatry, religious apostasy, spiritual and moral darkness, and I could go on. And lastly, we must not miss that Jesus is the king to which all people find hope. Jesus really is for all. What other faith, religion, or worldview can ever make that claim? Jesus is the king for princes and peasants, the rich and poor, men and women, young and old. The loved as well as the discarded and rejected. Jesus is the king for those who belong and those who are foreigners, immigrants, refugees, and outsiders. And let's not forget in this genealogy, there are sinners, liars, gossips, cheats, idol worshipers, murderers, dictators, and sexual deviants. They're all right here. Is anybody left out? No. No. Matthew's introductory genealogy at first appears with a twist of irony that throughout history, Somehow people were seeking God, but when we look at it with closer examination, we see it is God who's been seeking them and us all along. And if you put your ear to the text, you hear God's loving heartbeat who has been present and attending to individuals, families, and nations throughout all time. Matthew begins and ends his gospel with God's love for the world. At the end of the gospel, we see the hope of every tribe and tongue, right? When the risen Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, now go make disciples of every nation. Jesus is the king with no equal. And Jesus is the king for all people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and every word of your word. And forgive us, Lord, for glossing over names or things that seem unimportant when they are so important and so impregnated with truth. So Lord, speak to us. Open our eyes and hearts to the glory of Jesus the King. A King who understands, yet without sin, our mess and speaks into our mess and gives us hope for now and for the future. We adore you.